Just a heads up, today's episode doesn't get into anything graphic, but should be said that we do discuss some mature themes. Are we talking about the House of Mirth or the Age of Innocence here? I mean, come on. Welcome to another episode of The Book Isn't Necessarily Better. This is a podcast put on by the Community Library Network of Northern Idaho. I'm your host, Michaela, here with Roxanne. And today we're talking about The Age of Innocence. The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Take her away, Roxanne. All right. So I'm going to tell you first about Edith Wharton. She was the writer of The Age of Innocence. So Edith Newbold Jones was born in New York City in 1862 to very wealthy parents. Her mother had been a Schirmerhorn, which is basically the old money equivalent of uh, Vanderbilt Arnaster. Uh, the Schirmerhorns were rich, old New York money. Her father was Edward Jones, whose family had owned a bank in New York, and he made his own money in New York real estate. So she basically spent most of her childhood in Europe, mainly France, Germany, Italy, and she had the absolute best education available. They also spent a lot of time in Newport, Rhode Island, which would be a setting for a lot of her um, stories and novels. Fun fact, her nickname to her friends and family was Pussy Jones. Moving right along. When she was 16, there was a privately published book of her poems called Verses. She came out as a debutante in 1879. Uh, She then courted a man named Henry Stevens. And even though he was rich and she was rich, both of their families disapproved and they broke off the engagement. And the newspaper or like tabloid town topics reported that the cause was, quote, an alleged preponderance of intellectuality on the part of the intended bride. Wow. Money ain't everything, kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it does sound like she was really maybe a genius. Uh, she also was incredibly talented in gardening and architecture. And she wrote books, not just fiction, but on all these different subjects as well. Mm-hmm. So she goes to Paris with her mother, but she has come home when she's just 20 years old because her father died. She goes ahead and marries when she's almost an old maid of 23 years old. Yep. <laughs> she married Edward Wharton. He was a wealthy Boston banker in 1885, and he went by the name Teddy. Fun fact, she had been forbidden to read novels until she was married. Her mother <laughs> didn't think that they were okay for her uh, sheltered young ears, and she actually apparently obeyed this rule. I mean, fun fact, a lot of people actually didn't think novels were appropriate reading for young women Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, Many libraries, in fact, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, did not carry fiction novels. Really? Uh, Yeah, they were for educational purposes only, and nonfiction was in, and fiction was trash. Wow. Well, you can read all the trash you want at the Community (laughs) Library Network. So one of her best friends throughout her entire life was Henry James, the author. He was definitely an inspiration for her style and themes of social issues and manners. Basically, since she was a teen, she was selling short stories published in magazines like Scribner's and Harper's. Like I said, she loved architecture and she even co-wrote a book on interiors called The Decoration of Houses. And fun fact, you can find this on one of those like fall asleep to a story podcast and one of them was the decoration of houses and i don't think i got two minutes in it's very relaxing (laughs) it put me right to to sleep okay 
Um, so she had real estate all over New England. She also had, of course, um, flats in Paris where she lived for many years. She and Teddy had a house called Land's End in Newport, Rhode Island. They also built a house in Western Massachusetts called The Mount. And she had a huge hand in um, the architecture of that as well. In 1901, her mother died and she got her inheritance. It was about 22. So at this time, she was making about $22,000 a year. So already by 1901, she had about half a million dollars a year in our money. Okay. Her first novel was The Valley of Decision in 1902. One of her most famous books, The House of Mirth, came out in 1905. And we have a great adaptation movie of it here at the library. And it stars Laura Linney and Gillian Anderson. Cannot recommend it enough. I haven't seen it and I recommend it anyway. I love yeah. those guys. It's good. <laughs> okay, now it gets a little spicy. In 1908, she had an affair with Morton Fullerton. <laughs> in 1909, her husband, Edward Teddy, admitted to embezzling $50,000 from her trust fund. Oh. But he made restitution. And that's about over a million dollars in today's money. He was like, sorry. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, they got divorced in 1913. Yes. yes there we go. <laughs> uh, in World War One, she did a ton for the French war effort. She founded the American Hostels for Refugees and the Children of Flanders Rescue Committee. She opened a grocery depot and a clothing depot in Paris. I assume that's like a Salvation Army or, uh, you know, giveaway. I think so. I was reading that she opened a lot of like work centers for young women. Mm-hmm. So while their husbands or boyfriends were away or fathers away fighting the war, uh, they had a place to work and actually make money. Yeah. Uh, and she went to the front like five times. Yeah. So she was really brave. Um, yeah. After that, she lived in France for a long time. And I have an anecdote anecdote that I want to (laughs) read you. It's a story of when Edith Wharton and F. Scott Fitzgerald had tea together one afternoon. Well, this sounds delightful. Please spill. Do you know the story? No. (laughs) Okay. So I'm taking this word for word from the New England Historical Society website when Fitzgerald came to tea. (laughs) So Fitzgerald was 28 and just published The Great Gatsby. He sent the 63-year-old Wharton a copy. In return, she invited him and his wife Zelda to tea at her home outside Paris. Quote, to your generation, I must represent the literary equivalent of tufted furniture and gas chandeliers, she wrote. (laughs) Zelda refused to go. She didn't want Edith Wharton to make her feel provincial. Fitzgerald invited Teddy Chandler, a mutual friend who would later become a music composer. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -mm. So Fitzgerald got drunk on the way to Wharton's house and found the tea party boring. That all tracks, yeah. He actually was a huge fan of hers. Like, once he had, like, kissed the ground in front of her feet oh, when okay. they first so met. anxious drinking. Probably. Yeah. So he got drunk on the way to Wharton's house and found the tea party boring. He lunged around the elegantly furnished drawing room, then leaned against the mantel and told a risque story. It was about an American couple who stayed in a Paris bordello, thinking it a hotel. <laughs> Edith Wharton didn't think much of the story because it had no plot. She refilled his teacup and said, but Mr. Fitzgerald, you haven't told us what they did in the bordello. <laughs> Wharton then recorded her impressions of the afternoon in her diary, saying, To tea, Teddy Chandler and Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist. Dash. Mm-hmm. Awful. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Woo! The yeah, snark. The snark. Um, she had a lot of famous friends besides Henry James. She met H.G. Wells in 1931. Um, she just did a lot. She wrote 40 books in 40 years on a variety of topics. And finally, in 1920, she wrote the subject of today's 
Chat, The Age of Innocence. It's set in the 1970s of her childhood, and she won the Pulitzer Prize for it. She was the first woman to do so. Sorry, 1870s. Yeah. What did I say? 1970s. Yeah, it's set in the 1870s (laughs) of her childhood. She was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize, beating out Sinclair Lewis for Main Street, which is a fantastic book. Have you read it? I have not. It's set in Minnesota. Oh, of course it is. (laughs) Here's the the fun thing about that. The Pulitzer Prize Committee actually did award the Pulitzer Prize to Sinclair Lewis. Didn't they take it back then? And then they took it back. The, uh, The college board overrode them. And gave it to Edith Wharton instead. So, like, they just hadn't read the book yet or what? I, I'm not really sure. It sounded like for some reason they thought it didn't merit the award. Yeah, um, I kind of looked into it too and it seemed vague. Yeah. I'm not really sure why they took it away. Mm-hmm. But they did take it away. And despite that, she and Sinclair Lewis were friends. Huh. Yeah. Oh. Nice. So she she died in 1937 when she was 75 in France. She had been living there for most of her adult life. By the end of her life, she had traveled across the Atlantic Ocean 60 times. Wow. That boggles my mind. Mm -hmm. She wrote many travel books. Yeah. Yeah. She loved to travel. She actually even um, I don't have the exact thing that she found, but she was in Italy and there was this villa that they had um, thought was from the 17th century and she did her own research and she actually figured out that it was from the 16th century. Oh. Yeah. And like they published it. Wonderful. She was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So smart and rich. Uh, She's got it all. I know. Hmm. Yeah. By the end of her life, she was making about uh, $1.2 million a year. Wow. Mm -hmm. Good for Edith. Yeah. I'm totally beloved. (laughs) Well, not by everyone, as we're about to find out. So before we talk about the book, do you have anything to add to Edith's life? My only fun fact that you didn't cover, and it's it's possibly apocryphal, but you did mention her family was the Joneses, and they might be where the phrase keeping up with the Joneses uh, originates. They are. Mm -hmm. Yep, that is true. Yeah, and like you'll see, most of her books are... Set in the rich life of New York. I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of The Age of Innocence. So I actually was really surprised when um, it came out, that it came out in 1920 and not in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I thought it had. And disclosure, <laughs> I'm, this is a twofer for me because <laughs> my book group picked this one. Mm, and thanks a lot, book group. <laughs> and I was like, Michaela, what if we also talked about it? Um, but like I said, it was published in 1920. It was her 12th novel. And quick synopsis. So Newland Archer is old money in New York in the 1870s. This time period after the Civil War to it can stretch as far as up to World War One. Mm-hmm. That's it's a little far. It's a little far. Basically, you have the Gilded Age. So, OK, so safely, you can say the Gilded Age is right after the Civil War to like the 1890s. OK, it's called the Gilded Age, which was coined from Mark Twain. And if you think about gilding, it's not actually golden. It's usually a very thin covering of gold over something else. Right. So meaning to imply that it's not actually the Golden Age. It's just nice for a few people at the top. And it was really hard for most of the population. It's real chintzy. Chintzy. Love it. <laughs> yes. Fun word. Yeah. So the Gilded Age. Right now, there is an HBO series called The Gilded Age. Have you watched this? Are you going to watch it? Uh, it's fabulous. I love it's it. It's so good. Okay. You like it. I love it's it. It's so good. It's so good. Julian Fellows. Yes. Is also the mastermind behind Downton Abbey. Yeah. And it is every bit as good as Downton Abbey. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So it's on HBO right now. Um, they also have a podcast that goes along with it, hosted by the host of one of my favorite podcasts I've been listening to for like eight years called The Bowery Boys, mm-hmm. which is just great 
New York history. Uh, and then they interview the people from the show. It's so good. So it's not based on necessarily anyone of Edith Wharton's stories, but it could be pulled from anything she was writing about. It's very similar. I had it in my notes as a show to recommend if you like this book. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you don't like this book, because I don't and I do like the show. And I love this book and love the show. Just watch the show. Just watch it. It's good. Oh, you'll love it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Newland Archer, he's about 35. He's a lawyer who doesn't sound like he does very much. No. He kind of goes in his office and like shuffles papers around. Yes. He's a gentleman lawyer. Yes. There we go. He's an esquire. He is engaged to May Welland. And I'm saying it weird because I listened to this instead of reading it. And so I couldn't figure out, like, is this a Scottish name? Like May Welland? (laughs) May Welland. Yeah. I thought it sounded like May Welland. Yeah. When I was listening to it, it was very weird. She is in a beautiful and appropriate for his social class, young lady. (laughs) Uh, She's like 21. She's really sheltered. She's very naive. And she basically has been brought up to be a wife to someone just like him. Mm -hmm. So she's been brought up to not really have a personality. Yeah, there's some scathing indictments of how we bring up young women in this era. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this book, it is the only thing that I will say is redeeming about this book Mm -hmm. is how deeply it kind of strikes at marriage and raising women. Yeah. So he is super excited to get married to his beautiful fiance until he meets <laughs> her cousin, the Countess Ellen Olenska. She is probably about 34. Mm-hmm. I'm basing this on how old Michelle Pfeiffer is when she filmed The Age of Innocence. <laughs> okay. I actually looked that up this morning. I'm like, oh, she was 34 and she's filming it. And so what? she's back from Europe after a scandalous separation from her jerk husband, the Polish count. <laughs> and so she came back to New York after growing up there. And Newland is placed as Ellen's lawyer. And he's basically pressured to convince her not to get a divorce because that would make even more scandal. And then he falls in love with her because she has a mind of her own and she flouts convention. <laughs> And like lives by herself. Oh my! Oh, and she associates with artists and bohemians. She's very, uh, very high class. Basically, she's cool. (laughs) She's super cool. Well, she is Michelle Pfeiffer. She is Michelle Pfeiffer in the movie. Basically, Newland's like, okay, I'm going to leave May and let's get married, Ellen. She's like, no, you can't do that. And so he's like, okay, Newland and May get married anyway. I'm really giving you the bridge version. Yeah. So. After they get married, Ellen moves away to Washington, D.C., and May and Newland settle into their stuffy, rich life. I don't feel bad for them. I would love to have somebody cook you dinner every night and then serve it to me. Yeah. Also, yeah. his library seems incredible. <sighs> yeah. Personal libraries at the time. Ooh, so cool. Beautiful. I would love to go to the J.P. Morgan Library mm-hmm. in New York. That oh. would be amazing. My favorite one is the Thomas Jefferson Collection at the Library of Congress. Oh my god, I was just thinking about that. It's gorgeous. Oh my god. But they look at us agreeing on things. What? (laughs) A beautiful library. Yeah. This is back in the days when people would get basically the text for the book and then you would take it to your own bindery. That is so cool. Which is excellent. It's the same in Downton Abbey. If you look uh, on his shelves, he's got all his like custom bindings <gasps> on all of his books. And it just, it makes my mouth water. That's so cool. <laughs> if you ever just want to turn your brain off, type in like book binding process into mm. YouTube. It's so relaxing to watch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're sorry for all you people who think we're giant nerds. We are. Um, but I have a feeling that people listen to this podcast. Yeah. Share our, our love of books. We're very certain you would enjoy watching mm-hmm. Bookbindery. Yeah, so anyway, I bet he has this amazing library and he like doesn't even, he takes it for granted. He's kind of emo. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, 
I in this in the sense of and this is what I thought was interesting about this book. It's written by a woman in a time when women weren't writing a lot of novels. It's from the perspective of a man, which was also cross gender is not usually like a thing that was happening. Mm -hmm. But then it's very, very interior. Like you get all of his thoughts on marriage and society and all of this stuff. And it's pretty against the grain of actual like society reality at this point. Mm hmm. That was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, she was 58 by the time she wrote it and had been divorced mm. for seven years. So mm -hmm. I don't think that she gave a lot of cares at that point. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you read any of her other novels? Mm -mm. The House of Martha is really good. So The Age of Innocence is actually more like low stakes and chill. The House of Murph is intense. And her name is Lily Bart. Did you ever watch Gossip Girl? Mm -mm. Okay, the mom's name is Lily Bart. So Gossip Girl actually oh. takes a lot from Edith Wharton novels. Oh, I actually have a Gossip Girl tie-in for this novel. I know. Okay. They have an upset. They do. Back to The Age of Innocence, which is the more chill book rather than House of Murph, which is like roller coaster of Victorian emotions. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan's super bored with his wonderful life. <laughs> He's still in love with Ellen and he still wants to run away with her. Did I miss this? Did they actually do the, the thing? No. Because I read. No. Nope. Like, I thought I totally missed that. And I was reading that synopsis and it said they consummated it. They did not. They held hands like one time. I thought they kissed once. Uh, maybe. Okay. So I think it's like in the olden times where they would say like make love and it didn't actually mean it that. It didn't mean that. It meant like kissing. Yes. Or even like oh, saying you're sweet talking about things. when she says don't make love to me. Yeah, it's not. Like we use it now. No, I know. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. It's the old fashioned. Yes. Yeah. But then I saw another synopsis that said consummated and that just didn't. Uh, that's wrong. That okay. So happen. they never actually. Okay. If you were looking for a Harlequin romance, this, this is not it. it. <laughs> it's not it. It's very appropriate. I would say it's more than appropriate. It is more than appropriate. It is definitely safe to watch this with your parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is safe for work. Safe for work. You mm -hmm. can watch us at work. Yeah. Be that weirdo watching it at work. <laughs> so anyway, he still wants to run away with Ellen. They do declare their love for each other. They kind of have plans, but May goes to Ellen and says, I'm pregnant. She wasn't actually sure if she was pregnant, but she pretty much knew that there was an affair going on. And she's like, I'm pregnant. And so Ellen's like, yeah, I got to go. And Which way to go, Ellen? Yeah. And then May throws like a big party for her to like, goodbye. <laughs> she throws a goodbye party. And then afterwards, she's like, basically, she's like, guess what? Newland, you're not leaving. I'm pregnant. And now I'm sure. So she she was manipulative and she said she was sure to Ellen, but she wasn't. Right. Which is about the most intelligent she gets in this entire book. Mm -hmm. It's it's the most of her own mind thing she does. Absolutely taking agency over the situation. Yes. And it's the only time that happens. I do love, though, at the end of the book, it's like 30 years later, she's died, his kids are grown up, mm -hmm. and uh, his son takes him to see the Countess Olenska. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about May and the son says she always knew it was okay because one time when she asked you you gave up everything and I that actually was kind of a great line at yeah. the end of that book. Like he doesn't end up seeing Count Alaska even though he could 30 years later and I think it's because he didn't want to see her old which annoyed me. <laughs> uh, yeah I don't like that was annoying to me like just go say hi I don't know. Okay. I don't I, I know it's supposed to be romantic and poetic. more is like the time has passed us and I can't look back sort of thing. And I think he was just being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
like, I bet she was still beautiful. Anyway, yeah, okay. I I, I'm like on team Ellen for this, but so that's the book. That is the entirety. Of the I book. like it. I love Edith Wharton's writing. Why did you not like it? Oh, so I don't know. For one thing, because it does feel like a book where almost nothing happens. That's true. Uh, but I love that. That's I, what I love. I love a low stakes book. <laughs> I'm okay with low stakes if it's really like insightful or really like moving or the interior life is interesting. I just and I you didn't get that. It's not that I didn't get that. I just I feel like I've read this novel done better. But did she write this so that others could run? You know what I mean? Like Edith Wharton walked so others could run. Uh, maybe. But I'm also thinking back to like Jane Austen does some okay. really similar things. And Fair that's, <laughs> you know, 30, 40 years before this. So no, it's like more than 100 years before this. Oh, she wrote it in 1920. No, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> she wrote it in <laughs> Sorry. 1920. This is a resource we haven't talked about a lot here. Mm-hmm. I did listen to this book. Hmm. The library did not have a a digital copy available. So I on Libby. To, on Libby. So I went to Project Gutenberg, which if you don't know about this, uh, is a project that collects all the digital books and digital audiobooks that are like in the public domain. So uh, this is obviously old enough to be in the public domain mm-hmm. because it was written before 1925. Right. Uh, so I actually listened to it on Project Gutenberg for free. Cool. But I, I don't know. I also didn't love the narrator. Mm. That could be part of it. I don't know. I found it very tedious. Hmm. So and plotting. Hmm. Yeah. It didn't I, move fast enough for me. That's totally valid. Mm. I just love Edith Wharton. Mm. But also I'm coming at this from I got my university history degree in women's history from 1850 to 1950. Uh, so that might give some insight into why I am all over this. Okay. So Roxanne's history corner. Yeah. Uh tell me because the the thing that this book does touch on that I do think is interesting in a literary sense is the woman question. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that for a sec? Sure. So what aspect of it? So just, it's a little bit more general, but like the woman question is people dealing with societal change that was happening uh, at this time, like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where women's role was shifting mm-hmm. uh, from less inside the house, more outside. Marriage was kind of changing the rules. Women were starting to have more bodily autonomy in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Uh, birth control started to be a thing. So all these questions of how women should act in society were sort of like changing from old values to new. Yeah. And I do think that this book addresses that in some interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. Because do you know what the concept of the new woman was? Mm, tell me. Okay, so we have Victorian society, which, I mean, it is Victorian society is more English, but it is kind of a catch-all term term for like mid to late 1800s. And there's this idea of the separate spheres. So right. women were in one sphere, men were in the other. And this was basically because industrialization meant that men left the house to go to work. Whereas before, you could argue that men and women were more equal as partners in the home when men were there working alongside their wives. Because the, <laughs> the home could be like a unit of um, industry. If you were like working together, you could argue this is more for like farms and stuff. Yeah. But once men started leaving the house to go to work in the upper classes, because (laughs) if you were poor, you're also the woman is also going to work. Yeah. We don't talk about the low classes. (laughs) Yeah. But then so it became the woman's job to stay in the house and be the quote angel of the house Mm. and create like this safe space for men to come home to. And so now it meant like women were supposed to be protected and they were in charge of the house and they're supposed to be happy with that. Men were out in the dirty world and they had to be aggressive. And so it was like a separate, but equal, but not 
separate but equal because women were being put on this pedestal where it's like, but you're at home. Be okay with that. (laughs) And so this was really popular up until like it started to change around the late 1800s. So after this time period, um, some women started getting higher education. Mm hmm. I actually did my thesis <laughs> for my uh, history degree is that there is this doctor named Dr. Clark. And this was like the first four years that women were going getting into universities in the 1870s. And he would go on lecturing tours and saying how they can't go to college because all the blood is going to go from their uterus to their head and make their uteruses fall out. And it was all a big anxiety. Like he, they were, or they would like physically die because they could not handle the strain. Oh my goodness. And it really was just an anxiety of, well, if women can't have babies because they're going to college, because they just saw like, if they're not going to fulfill their role, <laughs> then like, this is terrible. We can't have them going to college because then they're going to, they're messing up the sphere that we, the system that we set up. Yeah. So this was all disproven four oh. years later when women started to graduate. I love that it had to be disproven. Like, what? and it, like, Literally, they just started writing letters and being like, I just graduated. How do you like them apples? I got a uterus and a mortarboard. How about that? (laughs) That's going to be the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. So as soon as women got a little bit into higher education, then so there's like 25 years of this. And then we have the idea of the new woman who's educated and she's starting to go more into roles like and yes it was still limited but they were now working alongside men outside of the house and maybe even until they were married and then they would stay home again but we also had women so (laughs) i know i'm all over the place but it's so fascinating it's my favorite thing the world talk about you could argue that the bicycle is the reason that women became liberated i would argue that actually it's because you could get farther away from your house and Mm -hmm. go by yourself also, because then you had to start wearing bloomers. Mm-hmm. And guess what bloomers had? Pockets. Sometimes. Sometimes. Not always. But sometimes they had pockets. So, you know, you could hold all your own stuff mm-hmm. and take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> and granted, through all this, we're talking about, like, upper middle class women. Yes. Lower class women had to work really hard <laughs> and be in the factories with men. Yes. Um, but basically, if you had a bicycle, you could go do things by yourself. And you could just kind of prove everyone wrong that your uterus wasn't going to fall out. (laughs) (laughs) And so women got more and more active, like physically active, like going out and playing sports until like in 1900s, you have this idea of the Gibson girl. And she was like really like a Madame Olenska. So she had ideas and she was sassy and she would play tennis. And she, instead of like the May Wellens, going back to the original question... (laughs) Of the 1870s, who she was raised to be kind of boring and not have an opinion. The new woman in the early 1900s up to like through World War One, was like a girl who was active and could like play with the boys. So Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, we always work it all back. Did in. I answer your question? Uh, yeah, it was more just a general, like, let's talk about history for a second. Okay. Yeah. And then, of course, we have the flappers during the 1920s. And that's because after World War One, everyone was like, we don't need rules anymore. Like, <laughs> we're all going to die from Spanish influenza or the war. So, like, let's loosen up. <laughs> and then after World War Two, they did the opposite. They're like, okay, everybody, let's button it. Button it back down. Yeah, basically. Like, it's kind of a weird, like, 30-year mm-hmm. period right there. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank Women's you. history is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know if they answer your question, but uh, that kind of at least tells you, like, how it went from the old woman 
idea to the new woman. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this novel is very much on the forefront of moving from one to the other. Mm-hmm. You've got your your old money, old world example in Maywell, and you've got your new girl, your Gibson girl. Yeah. That's uh, basically what yeah. Madame Olenska is a prototype of, the yeah. new woman. Well, excellent. Yeah. See, we worked that all back in. It was all good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could talk about this for ages. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, please don't. Ages of innocence? Uh, what? Do you know where she got the name for the novel? Uh, no. It's the name of this very famous painting that was sort of the equivalent of our idea of the Gerber baby. <laughs> so there's this painting oh. from the 1880s and it's basically just like a five-year-old girl. She looks pretty sweet. They would like use this commercially all the time as like the idea of a child, you know, like in advertisements or so it was sort of like our idea of the Gerber baby. Okay. But it, the painting was called The Age of Innocence. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have some of my favorite quotes from the novel. Okay. Including one, one that one fits into our, our chat. Perfect. My favorite thing that Newland says and it really does feel like a woman wrote this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Women ought to be free, as free as we are, he <laughs> declared, making a discovery of which he was too irritated to measure the terrific consequences. I had that one, too. What does that end part mean, though? Making it. It's like it's news to him. Because he's a man and he's like, oh, my gosh, I just realized <laughs> women are the same. Oh, my God. <laughs> But, like, the consequences of that are not going to be realized for another, Mm. a long time. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that this book came out in the year 1920 Mm -hmm. when women got the vote. Yeah. I just made that connection. Nice. Which she probably wouldn't have known as she was writing this, but the time coincidence, I'm sure that Mm -hmm. had something to do with it as well. Yeah. Um, Fun fact. Idaho was one of the first states to give women the right to vote. A lot of Western states were. Many Westerns, yeah. The first one was Wyoming. Yeah, because the gender spheres were way less strict out in the West. Yeah. Because everyone was just kind of making their new thing. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's working. And the West Coast does not have this whole upper class, lower class, old money, new money thing that is going on in the East Coast where this takes place. Yeah, absolutely. So you could more likely make your own rules out in the West. Yeah. And a lot of women did. I know. (laughs) Okay. Here's one of my favorite ones. Uh, In reality, they all lived in a kind of hieroglyphic world where the real thing was never said or done or even thought, but only represented by a a set of arbitrary signs. I had that one too. Nice. (laughs) Two for two. Okay. And here's my last one because they are very pretentious. About okay. literature in here, which I thought was very I think funny. I know which one you picked. Okay. Got it. And I only picked part of it because it's really long. But uh, they preferred those books about peasant life because of the descriptions of scenery and the pleasanter sentiments. Though in general, they liked novels about people in society whose motives and habits were more comprehensible. Spoke severely of Dickens, who had never drawn a gentleman, <laughs> and considered Thackeray less at home in the world than Bulwar. However, was beginning to be thought old-fashioned. Hmm. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the one... Um, we can't act like people in novels do. I also love that. Yes. That was a good one. Uh, the, my last quote I had is, his whole future seemed suddenly to be unrolled before him and passing down its endless emptiness, he saw the dwindling figure of a man to whom nothing was ever to happen. I almost wrote that one down. Do you feel bad for him? Uh, I mean, in the sense that we've talked, to, we've kind of talked around patriarchy a lot today, but in a sense, the patriarchy traps men into very specific roles as well. Yeah, it sure does. And in the sense that he feels trapped in that role and would mm-hmm. like to be out of it, yes, I feel bad for him. On mm-hmm. the other hand, he has a lot of agency and he does nothing with it. So 
Yeah. Two thumbs down for Newland. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it would take a lot of guts to. It would, but he seems like a guy who, I mean, he says things like this at parties and like mm-hmm. kind of alludes to it. And as soon as he gets any pushback from people, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he, he has good ideas, but yeah, he doesn't have anything to back it up. Yeah. He's not ready to he doesn't like, have any for it. I don't think he would have been given those tools. Right. He's got no gumption. He don't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I don't feel bad for him. Yeah. In, in the long run. Do we want to talk about adaptations? Yeah. There, was there anything else you hated about this book? Everything. Just everything. What did you, like, okay, tell me more about why you hated it. No, I'm good. Like, you're good? I'm good. I. It's more just... Not for you? It's just not for me. Okay. And that's not to say it's not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I definitely think there's a, a time and a place for every book in your life. It just, this one... Didn't hit me. I'll take all the Edith Wharton novels. Yeah. Maybe in like 10 years, let's come back. We'll talk about it again. I'll read Ethan Frome and we can talk about it. Yeah. I have to read Ethan Frome. Four? I want to. Oh. (laughs) I don't have to. I don't have to do anything. (laughs) Yes, I do. Do what I want. I I do. Okay. So, adaptations. Yeah. What are we at? There's a 1924 Warner Brothers silent adaptation. Mm hmm. Uh, there was a Broadway version, 1928. There was a 1934 adaptation by RKO. And then there was a Gossip Girl <laughs> episode in 2009. If you're a baby and you don't know about what Gossip Girl is, <laughs> it was just a fantastic show. Huh. Did you ever watch Gossip Girl? I watched like, I wasn't like a religious watcher. We didn't have like stations or anything when I was growing up. Mm. So like every once in a while I'd catch it on like reruns of CW. Did you watch The O.C.? No. Okay. I think this is a time where it's like, even though you and I are only four years apart. Right. It is a weird. Yeah. (laughs) So like the OC was my high school experience, like Mm. not like watching it every week. That was like the big thing to watch. And then Gossip Girl was like in my college years. So Gossip Girl was like uh, rich kids on the Upper East Side kind (laughs) of doing like Gilded Age stuff, but present day. And they had amazing costumes. Prep school kids, right? Mm-hmm. And this episode is called what? The Age of Dissipation? Dissonance. Dissonance. <laughs> Joe, that was really funny. Yeah. Then we have the heavy hitter. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. A wonderful movie <laughs> came out in 1993 by Mr. Martin Scorsese, mm. who is one of my favorite directors. Okay. I'm not one over yet. Okay. Have you, do you like Scorsese in general? I, usually, yeah. Okay. He's not like on my. Oh, he's like one of my, my like, favorite top favorites. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so he was given the book in 1980. It took him like seven years to finally read it. And then he mm. made this movie. It came out in 1993. It was supposed to come out in 1992, but Scorsese wanted an extra year of editing. So he took it very seriously. He took an extra year of editing and that's what we ended up with? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Boom. Roasted. Roasted. <laughs> uh and okay, so it's a movie with a voiceover. How do you feel about a voiceover? Um, okay, so my notes from this movie. Okay, to okay, me- you go. Okay, you go ahead and roast it, and then I'll tell you all the cool stuff about the making of. I'm not going to read all my notes. I did, in all honesty, I watched the movie before I read this book. Okay, they're exactly the same. Yeah, it is very I, like, close. Exactly. Um, so all of my notes are in caps. All of them. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, tell me more. Uh, my first one is. Opening sequence, unfurling flowers, question mark, question mark, question mark. It's a little on the nose. It's way, it's way too on the nose. Uh, but the, did you notice, sorry, in the opening, okay. in the opening sequence, they even had a credit. It said opening sequence and it was like a husband and wife pair. Yes. And I was like, you guys are very proud of like a very early 90s. 
It's so early. It is so. It's like opening it. flowers with like, uh, it's like an like overlay. cursive script. Yes. Um, overlay on top and like love letters. Yes. <gasps> but it's not just flowers, right? Like there's scenery and stuff behind. Is it. there? I think there is. Okay. Anyway, either way, the opening flowers, like, do it once. Okay. It's still pretty on the nose. Like there's over like twenty. Without a flower. So there's too many flowers. Yeah. Too much symbology. Yep. Is <laughs> I will not argue with you there. Yeah. Okay. A lot uh, of sometimes I, I think <laughs> things in his movies can get really dated really quick. Like yeah. Gangs of New York during their fight scenes when he like slows it down. Mm. That it looks really dated. Mm-hmm. The only other this is we got so off track. My other set of notes that's in all caps, and this is why this came up anyway, is who the heck is the narrator? With like a thousand exclamation points and question marks. Who is it? Well, it is Joanne Woodward, but I know what you're saying. (laughs) You're right. She's narrating like all his interior thoughts. Yeah. And later in the movie, you find out it's like some kind of casual acquaintance of theirs. Gossip girl XOXO. Yeah. But I'm like, (laughs) how do you even know what this guy's thinking? Why do you care? Like... Because it's not May, like, no, as an old no, person. No, it's, okay. like, an old lady. I can't remember which old lady she is. She's just, is like, it supposed, acquaintance. Is it supposed to be Edith Wharton? No. She's, like, one of the Vanderladens or something like that. She's, mm. like, a... It doesn't make sense. I thought it was just going to be, like, she's narrating over the top of the whole movie. But then you, in, like, halfway through the movie, they're at dinner, and the lady starts talking in the narration. Th- like, <laughs> I... Oh. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, no, I hate it. Okay, so, carry on. That's all my stuff. Not all my that stuff. Well, I want to hear more of your notes. No, I, I deleted a lot of my notes because there was a lot of profanity Not and safe way too many question marks. <laughs> so, oh, come But that's fine. Okay. Can you, can you remember was. anything else you hated? Um, Did you hate the movie or the story? Both. I don't like <laughs> the story. The movie is like really, it's kind of like dark and too like velvety, like, like, I'm, like visually, visually dark, dark and like, I don't know why velvety comes to mind. See, I see it as lush. See, I think my version of lush would be like a lot more light and a lot airier and like a lot more. This that's seems not to Victorian decorating. Very, I know. It's very like showy display of like too much stuff. That's a, that's exactly what Victorian decorating. What Like they literally could not get enough stuff into their rooms. Okay. Well, that's And shows. it was like really stuffy and like heavy. Yeah. But I think that that kind of informs, like, all of the movie. Because a lot of it takes place inside. And everything just feels so close and claustrophobic and, like, weird. So That's that, literally what I think he's going for. Okay. Well, I literally did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell me why this movie is good. Okay. And why the re- should I like it? Okay. Well, and the reason I... <laughs> well, one, I, I already uh, like studying interiors of Victorian stuff. So that's exactly what they were going for. Rooms were really stuffy and close and full of stuff. Uh, but he had actually, Scorsese actually had hired an art history graduate student named Robin Standifer. And she was a consultant. So for two and a half years, she, and this is a, a direct quote from my MDB. For two and a half years, she recorded all the cultural details of the late 19th century upper-class lifestyle, filling 25 large reference books. The filmmakers spared no expense in creating an accurate replica of the era. So this is why I love this movie so much. Hmm. Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis is in it, and I love him. He's famously a method actor. Apparently, he checked in the Plaza Hotel as N. Archer and lived there for two weeks wearing clothes suitable to his film character. Hmm. 
During the filming, he wouldn't speak to Richard E. Grant. So he's, you know, like the romantic rival mm-hmm. who is wonderful in the movie. Um, Can you ever forgive me? Have you seen that movie? Uh, which we could do as we could. a... I would love to do that one. Okay, let's do He wouldn't talk to him the entire time. And on the final day, he gave Grant a big hug and thanked him for putting up with his shenanigans. Yep. Cool. It did win a Oscar for Best Costume Design. I think that's I, deserved. I buy that. I don't agree that uh, Winona Ryder was nominated for Best Actress. And she, she won the Golden Globe for it. Yeah. I just don't think she does. And it's and it's not her. It's that no. character. There's not anything for that character to do. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just everyone loved Winona Ryder. Yeah. Um, her real name is Winona. Do you know this? Hmm. Horowitz. <laughs> Which is Cher's last name in Clueless. <laughs> and did you know <laughs> okay. that her name... She's named after Winona, Minnesota, which is in Olmsted County, where I'm from, Rochester, Minnesota, which is in Olmsted County. <laughs> and um, did you know that the <laughs> and and did you know that the guy who designed Central Park, his name was Frederick Olmsted? Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, no, I didn't know any of those fun facts. Thank you. Around which Central Park is where a lot of the. Um, book takes place because the fancy mansions were around central park oh this book takes place in minnesota no takes place around central park (laughs) okay that was designed by frederick olmstead oh and i'm from olmstead Olmstead county County. and so is winona Ryder. gotcha fun fact a better movie (laughs) fun fact shut up (laughs) no i was going to say fun fact a better movie starring both daniel day lewis and winona Ryder. what is the crucible Oh, yeah. Which we could also hey, do. Hey, yes, we totally should. I find that to be the superior movie with these two. Last thing, Martin Scorsese said that this is the, quote, most violent film he's ever made. I think he's being facetious. Okay, good. An obvi- it says an obvious reference to the emotional versus physical states of being. I disagree. Mm-hmm. I've seen Raging Bull. <laughs> <laughs> I know what he's going for, but no. Right. So if you like this... Or you just want to watch or learn more about the Gilded Age time period. Michaela, what should people read? Unless you had any last thoughts about the movie. I don't. I think I've trashed it enough. Okay. I'm sorry, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Things you might want to read or watch in case you do like this, or even if you don't, because some of these are things that I do enjoy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Rules of Civility by Amor Tolls. Oh, what is that about? I've never heard of that. Don't put me on the spot like this. It's kind of that same sort of like Gilded Age, turn of the century, like turn from uh, one type of society to another. Okay. You should also read Julian Fellows, who we've mentioned several times because he does Downton Abbey and the Gilded Age, both of which you should watch. Uh, Has two books out named Snobs and Belgravia. Ooh. And they made a series out of Belgravia. Yeah. So. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't either. But things to do if you like Julian Fellows or just like this stuff. Um, going out into a little bit of other cultures, you could read Crazy Rich Asians Trilogy Ooh. by Kevin Kwan. It kind of deals with that high-class, low-class turn of society. Like it. Yeah. Uh, or A Well-Behaved Woman by Therese Ann Fowler, and that one's a little bit more back. To United States, it talks about the Vanderbilt family, mm-hmm. but it's fictional. Which is a fascinating story. In the sense. Ooh, I would recommend <laughs> the book To Marry an English Lord, okay. which is what Downton Abbey was based on. It's a nonfiction book because, okay, I'll give you a really quick history lesson. <laughs> During the Gilded Age over in England, a lot of aristocrats were cash poor and they had these huge mansions that were crumbling. So 
we had new money in New York who could not break in like the families who had new money from all the industries couldn't break into the old New York families and they wouldn't Mm -hmm. let them be part of society, even though they had money. So they would send their daughters over to England. And so it was a really a win win because the daughters would become titled um, and become aristocrats. And then they brought the money over with them to save the estate. Well, they're also called buccaneers, which is uh, Edith Wharton's last book that she was writing when she died. Million dollar princesses. Hmm. That's what they were called. Interesting. Yeah. So like Winston Churchill's mother, Jenny, was uh, a million dollar princess. And my sister is named after her, Jenny Rudolph. Nice. Winston Churchill's (laughs) mother. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Like Consuela Vanderbilt was a million dollar princess. So a bunch of princesses were sent over to England. Interesting. Or women were sent over to England and became princesses or duchesses or or countesses. Titled. Yeah. People. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that's the base. So To Marry an English Lord is a fantastic nonfiction book written about that very cool mm-hmm. so on the count of three <laughs> you didn't tell me which you liked better no it's hard i like oh. them both okay well don't say that yet because we have to count to three <laughs> okay so ready one two three both. neither <laughs> <laughs> that's fun all right thank you everyone for uh hanging out with us again we really appreciate it yeah and you should find us on social media on instagram at the book isn't necessarily better without an apostrophe in it we know it's not grammatically correct we're so sorry <laughs> you can also email us at podcast at community library.net we'd love to hear from you mm-hmm. and until we do happy reading happy watching <laughs> bye bye <laughs>